Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 17 through 19 this evening. It's also provided for you in your order of worship. Let us give ear now to the reading of the holy and the inerrant and the life-giving word of God, Jude, beginning with verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now with your word open before us, and we would ask that you would enable us to understand it, and that you would help us to live by it, and that you would build us up with it in our most holy faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Forgetfulness is something that every human experiences to some degree. Of course, there are some who struggle perhaps with forgetfulness or a certain absent-mindedness more than others. I came across a recent study uh, that concluded that the average person forgets about four things every single day. According to the study, the top three items people have a tendency to forget are, one, why you went into a room. Two, where you put your keys. And three, what you wanted to buy at the grocery store. Practically speaking, remembering things can have a positive impact on your daily life, eliminating the frustration perhaps of having to go home and get your wallet or avoiding that familiar and awkward moment of forgetting someone's name a mere few seconds after they told you what it was. The biblical idea of remembering, however, is loaded with a great deal more meaning, however, and a great deal more importance. In these three verses this evening, uh, Jude is calling on believers to remember something. And the substance of what he calls us to remember is of utmost importance and with implications for the spiritual health of the church and even for individual believers. I want us to note this evening simply three features of this call for Christians to remember. The first is simply this, the command. Jude is now turning from uh, his lengthy description of the false teachers from verses 5 all the way through verse 16. Now he's turning from that to directly exhort the believers to whom he's writing. The purpose for the letter of Jude was laid out way back in the beginning of the book in verse 3. Jude said, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Then in verse 4, he gave the reason for his appeal for them to contend for the faith, to explain uh, what it would mean. 
because certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people had infiltrated the ranks of these believers and had been of some influence among them, particularly in the realm of a, a godless, immoral lifestyle, all being excused under the banner of grace. They had perverted the grace of God, Jude said, into sensuality. And then he went on to spend the next 12 verses of this little book expanding upon that reason in verse 4. And now he turns from that ex- expanded explanation of the, those who had infiltrated this church to finally begin his appeal for them to contend for the faith. What would that entail? What would that look like? And here in verse 17, we have the first imperative command of the book. Jude exhorts them to remember. This is a command for them to remember knowledge that they already and currently possess. Literally, uh, the predictions of the apostles in verse 17 is more literally rendered, uh, the words spoken to you beforehand. Jude's readers were, had been personally told by the apostles of the Lord Jesus, likely in the planting of the church or churches he's writing to, and this is knowledge that they had told them beforehand that they needed to actively call to mind. The situation was one in which these readers were in danger of influence to immorality by, by these antinomian heretics. And in response to that situation, Jude presents the first step they needed to take in response. Mark Johnston puts it this way, like a good doctor, Jude has said to the ailing patient, this is what is wrong, and now he says, this is the remedy you must take. Now, whenever the Bible calls God's people to remember, that idea, as I said, carries a lot more weight than you and I tend to use it in our everyday language. This is not in the realm of forgetting where you put your keys. This is not just an intellectual exercise like remembering all of the presidents in order, perhaps, or your multiplication tables. I don't know if they still do that. Uh, This is not a mere data recall, in other words. This is moral imperative. Douglas Moo puts it this way, remembering in the Bible includes the will and not just the mind. In recalling what God has done or said in the past, we are to take it to heart in a way that affects our thinking and behaving. So this is moral exhortation and a call to be active and intentional about remembering. Another feature of this command to remember is that it comes with divine authority. He tells them to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word apostles literally means those who were sent. The idea is uh, one who was sent in the name of someone else and carrying the authority of the sender. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ were those who carried his message in his name, and as they delivered it, it came with his very authority. Gene Green explains, the apostles were not independent agents, but spoke and carried out a mission in the authority and under the authority of another. 
So the words spoken beforehand to these readers by the apostles carried the same authenticity and the very authority of the Lord Jesus who had sent them. Now in the case of Jude's original readers, this was almost certainly an oral message delivered directly to them. But it came with the authority and thus a permanent impact and ongoing power. In fact, the verb uh, tense of, of the, 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 the predictions, the word spoken beforehand, carries the idea of something that was spoken and carried a lasting and permanent impact. Also at the beginning of verse 18, the, they said to you is really, uh, more literally, they were saying over and over repeatedly to you. These things they said to you in the past, but their words were and are not like any other human discourse. They have staying power. They have permanence. They have power. Remember them. So for Jude's readers, so infiltrated with the peril of immoral false teaching and influence, as Daryl Charles puts it, the antidote to faithlessness is the sure anchor of apostolic teaching. Now, here in Jude, there's a specific context to what they were remembering and why, and and a circumstance that they're dealing with, although, as we'll see in a moment, it is not unique to Jude's readers. But isn't it noteworthy that the first thing Jude commands these believers to do is to take heed to the authoritative word of God? It is first and foremost the word of God that they need in dealing with their immediate surroundings and circumstances. Mark Johnston explains, they must view the world around them through the lens of the truths God has revealed to them in his word. Paying attention to the warnings of the Bible lessens the shock of much of what we see going on, not just in the world, but also in the church and helps us to believe that God is still in control. So the application and and the meaning thus for us uh, in the church and in the world as we know it, in which we find ourselves, is for us to take heed and to remember the word of God. We, We have the whole canon, or Jude's readers had had the Old Testament and a newly developing New Testament. We have the whole canon of divinely given scripture, graciously given to strengthen us, in the perilous world in which we live as believers. What do we need to face dangers from without and from within? We need the word of God on the matter. And so we are thus commanded in this very text to be actively engaged and feeding upon and growing in our knowledge of the scriptures. Uh, There's spiritual protection therein. And specifically in Jude's case, and as we'll see in ours, but, but even in general, to the extent that we are unaware of or forgetful of the scriptures, we give the enemy open opportunity to wreak havoc in our life and in the life of the church. Remember the words of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. Now, this command also presents the second feature I want us to look at tonight. The command to remember presents for us the context in which that command is to be obeyed. And that's the second feature I want to call your attention to tonight, the context. Uh, What was the content of the apostolic message that Jude was so intent upon them needing to remember? 
Look at verse 18. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. What does Jude mean by in the last time? The Old Testament would come to use uh, this phrase in anticipation of all that the coming of the Lord would one day mean for his people and for the whole world. And yet, as we get to the New Testament, we begin to see more clearly that everything that was anticipated by the Old Testament in the coming of the Lord would take place and occur by means of two comings of the Lord. The first coming of Christ in his earthly ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension, and the second coming are both a part of that anticipated picture from the Old Testament. Thus, the phrase, the last time, or as it's more normally used, the last days, is the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The the coming of Jesus ushered in the final stage of human history, and that stage will continue until he returns again. And so what Jude is saying is that according to the apostolic message, the presence of these immoral teachers in the church is a feature of the age in which they lived. And for them to forget that would be morally perilous. Jude's readers in the first century are living in the last days, just as we live in the very same era. And this was certainly not a novel prediction in the New Testament. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, during Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders, uh, we read this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul would call folks like that fierce or savage wolves. Jude would call them scoffers. The biblical idea of the scoffer is someone who holds the very idea of holiness or any pursuit of it in contempt. J.N.D. Kelly describes the scoffer as the man who despises morality and religion, the arrogant and godless libertine. And it is certainly an attitude, that of a scoffer, uh, and often speech. Uh, But it's precisely on the behavior here, more so than on the language of scoffing, where Jude's emphasis lies. He talks about them literally walking after their own uh, desires for ungodliness. There's a a godlessness when it comes to the morality of these uh, individuals, Uh, There's an attitude that is dismissive uh, toward those who are serious about pursuing holiness and purity, and there's a lifestyle that displays such a dismissive disdain. Peter David's comments, they betray themselves not so much by what they say, and certainly not by what they think, but by what they do. We in our age would do well to remember that those who claim commitment to Jesus must live as he lived. 
Now, Jude has already detailed from verses 5 all the way through verse 16 the character, uh, the nature, even the judgment of these infiltrators in the church. And his emphasis here is on their predicted presence within the church. The apostles repeatedly warned Jude's readers ahead of time, not that this was a possibility, but of the certainty of apostasy within the church from genuine Christianity and from biblical morality. Those who would be in the church, even in places of influence, whose lives and the message of their lives displays a godlessness in regards to obedience to God's commands. What, what the apostles had given them would be something akin to like, if we remember back in the old days when we had sports, you would read of a scouting report uh, where a, a, a scouting team would, would look at the opposing team and find out their strengths and weaknesses in order to be prepared for them, like preparing a hitter for the opposing pitcher's uh, strikeout pitch to prepare him not to swing at it. Jude's point and his plea, even, as J.N.D. Kelly states, is that there is, there's no cause for dejection since the apostles themselves have given an unambiguous forecast of precisely these alarming developments. Remembering what they told them was, was the, the prediction of what this was going to be. Remembering that is actually part of the solution, says Jude. Uh, there's a stretch of I-70 in Utah where there are literally no services available for about 106 miles. No rest stops, no gas stations, nothing. And there are signs leading up to the last possible service stop you may hit. And needless to say, one does well to heed a forewarning such as that. Jude is saying, always remember you have been told that it would be this way. Sort of like a child going out into the world, perhaps for the first time, maybe encountering something that they haven't personally ever encountered before or handled, but they've known to expect it because we've told them beforehand that this sort of thing was coming. Of course, on a human level, we can't possibly prepare our children for what they might face in the world comprehensively, but God has given us every single bit of truth that we need and in and for the church and for believers and for life and godliness in this world in his word. In fact, it is Jesus himself through his apostles who has told them this and the intended result of him having told them this ahead of time is comfort. The captain of the ship is still at the helm. I know there are wolves among you, but I told you it was going to happen. The captain of the ship is still at the helm in the middle of the storm. Uh, Marauders have not taken over the ship. Here's even a different application of that sweet thought of the hymn writer. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Jesus told us that this would be this way. Matthew Henry comments, We must not think it strange, but comfort ourselves with this, that in the midst of all this confusion, Christ will maintain his church and make good his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's also a, a preparedness 
uh, required of us that uh, uh, as a result of having been given this knowledge beforehand. When you know an enemy is at or is approaching the gates, you cannot but be vigilant and begin to take action. Now, on the one hand, we don't want to be those who who are always suspicious of everyone. We don't want to be known as the the nuance police, suspecting false teaching and immorality from everyone around us at all times. But this word, to remember what the apostles predicted, means at the very least we should not be caught off guard or surprised at the presence of false teachers when they manifest themselves. And moreover, uh, the fact that we have been prepared by the sure and certain predictions of the apostolic word that this would be the case, that is in itself a reminder that God is still on his throne and this is still his church and this will be an ongoing feature until he returns. And and we mourn uh, and yet we endure Uh, The fact that the church will be uh, by schisms rent asunder and by heresies distressed. But we also remember that the church will never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Another feature of the context Jude is calling them to remember uh, is one of the effects of the result that results from the presence of these false teachers. This situation creates factions in the church. Look at the beginning of verse 19. It is these who cause divisions. Uh, The very tense of the verb there indicates that this is a source of continuous and and ongoing division in the church. Christopher Green describes uh, the scene as something like this. They are becoming recognized centers of disagreement and discontent. Some Christians leap to their defense. And others will have nothing to do with them. Some swallow their alternative message with gusto and go on special study weekends with them. Others are confused because the kind of Christian life they have always lived is being criticized as less than Christian. Uh, Folks are coming to the uh, defense of these misunderstood nice guys. Allegiances have been formed and, and all around a false concept of the gospel. And if there's ever a rebuke of individuals such as this, it's categorized as unkindness and ungraciousness on the part of those who would seek purity for Christ's sake. And Jude concludes his description of this context of his call to remember by describing these false teachers one last time. He says they are worldly people, devoid of, of the spirit. Now, the, the idea there of worldly people, uh, the idea is that which is entirely earthly and, and all that pertains to this natural life alone, with, with zero account for any spiritual things, the, the life of the flesh. James chapter 3 speaks of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, the other side of this truth uh, of, of worldliness and more accurately, the, more accurately the reason for such worldliness is that these are natural worldly people because they have not the Spirit. The Spirit of God is not within them. In fact, that sums up the whole reason. Uh, they cause divisions and, and the reasons for the lengthy and vivid indictment of these antinomian teachers that Jude has just finished in the previous section. 
Gene Green uh, explains, Jude's accusation is that the heretics are nothing more than earthly people who are not governed by the Spirit. They are entirely natural and belong solely to this world as worldly people. In other words, they are not disciples of Christ, but simply unregenerate people. If, if our expression of our Christian liberty is that which is licentious and inherently sinful, you can be sure that that is not Christian liberty. The Holy Spirit and, and any kind of immoral lifestyle are simply and ultimately incompatible. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says, but the Holy Spirit, when he comes in the heart, comes like water. That is to say, he comes to purify the soul He that is today as foul a liver as he was before his pretended conversion is a hypocrite and a liar. He that this day loveth sin and liveth in it just as he was wont to do, let him know that the truth is not in him. God's spirit works by love and purifies the soul. Once let it get into our hearts and it will have no rest till it has turned every sin out. God's Holy Spirit and man's sin cannot live together peaceably. Well, the final feature of this call to remember, I want us to see, we've seen the command and the context for the command. I want us to see finally the contrast. Jude has described them as worldly people, devoid of the spirit. The contrast I want you to see comes when we remember, once again, who is being addressed. Jude makes that very clear by the very sharp turn he makes at the beginning of our passage in verse 17 that he takes in turning from them to you. Uh, But you, beloved. All of the description of these dangerous false teachers uh, and their lifestyle and their message was for the sake of these dear believers and in contrast to them. The whole time since verse 4, Jude has been speaking about them, but he has all the while been speaking to his beloved readers, uh, as the beginning of verse 17 reminds us. And and as his concluding description of them was as being holy, earthly-minded, unregenerate, devoid of the Spirit, the, the stark contrast that we have then is that these believers are those who truly do have the Spirit. The, the apostolic word that they are to remember includes by necessary implication that they have the Spirit. At the very beginning of this letter, in, in verse 17, as Jude addresses these believers as those who are beloved in God the Father uh, and kept for Jesus Christ, Jude now introduces the role of the Holy Spirit as a reality for them. We've already mentioned the idea of of the last days, inaugurated and begun in Christ's first coming. What Christ accomplished in his first coming has massive implications for the way we view and for the way we live our lives in the church. Part of the great work of redemption uh, was the sending of the Holy Spirit to apply what Jesus accomplished for us in his redemptive work. Jesus, in his first coming, accomplished 
our redemption, and then the Spirit, as even part of Jesus' first coming, was sent to apply that redemption to us by uniting us to Jesus in faith, giving us the new birth, making us part of the, the new order of the new creation, and indwelling us and empowering us with resurrection power. There's another way that theologians like to put this, which I think is very helpful. Uh, there is an already not yet dynamic to the Christian life. Because Christ has come uh, and he has died and he has risen again and he has ascended on high and he has poured out his Holy Spirit on his church and in the hearts of believers and, and because he intercedes for us constantly, because all this has happened, all of that redemptive work and the first coming of Christ there means that there are things that are already true for believers. And on the other side, because he has not come back in the second coming, there are some things that are not yet true of believers and the church. One thing that's not yet true for us is the eradication of our sin and the sinful inclinations and the inward pull that we still experience towards sin as a result of the remaining flesh within us. I, I think we're pretty clear on that concept usually. We, we rightly avoid the idea that, that one can ever reach a, a level of perfection or, or reach full sanctification in this life. But what about the reality of what is already true as a result of Jesus' first coming, and of which the witness of the apostolic word that we are to remember gives affirmation, the, the, the sending of the Spirit to awaken and to indwell and to empower believers in the life of the new creation is part of that which is already true of you and me in Christ. Richard Gaffin comments, how many Christians understand that the Holy Spirit presently at work in them is nothing less than resurrection power. That the Spirit through whom God will give life to your mortal bodies is His Spirit who dwells in you. How many appreciate that Christ Himself by His Spirit is present and at work in our lives in His resurrection power? The Spirit creates in us a new attitude towards sin, a mourning over sin and a hatred of it, yet not merely just sorrow over sin, but sorrow and turning from sin in light of the forgiveness that is there. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The Spirit creates in believers a, a growing concern uh, over holiness and an increasing awareness of our lack of holiness, a new desire for growth and purity, uh, a love for God's word and for his commands, which are not burdensome to the one with the spirit and a more and more turning away from sin and a more and more turning to righteousness and not from some sense of mere bare duty and drudgery, but he's working in us even the desires to be that way. The New Testament teaching about the Christian life isn't simply be better and do better and feel guilty when you don't. It's that you have the Spirit as part of the new creation which has dawned. 
Jude's opponents knew nothing of this. And Jude wants his readers to remember the difference. It's not simply a contrast of better behavior or better doctrine, although it is. It's a contrast between the life of the flesh of these heretics and the very powers of the age to come residing within these dearly beloved readers. Well, by this contrast, Jude is certainly not saying that believers have it all together. As I said, the Christian having the Spirit knows more and more of the great and unending need we have for more and more of the Spirit and his transforming power. We, we know that like a fruit-bearing tree takes time to mature and, and to maximize the fruit-bearing, so does the precious fruit of the Spirit take time to grow and develop in the life of the Spirit-indwelt believer. But we don't wonder if, but when, and how much. Because having the Spirit means that you are somewhere on that timeline. Maybe it's just the bud forming of patience early in life. Maybe it's a more fully grown, beautiful fruit of self-control developing. Maybe we're just sprouts yet. But we're growing. We have the Spirit. It's the presence of the Spirit that makes a person uh, recognize that, that struggle that the Apostle Paul puts so vividly in Romans 7. I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do. I find myself un- unable to do them. But when you keep reading into the next few verses of Romans chapter 8, you see that not only do we have a confidence in the standing that we have in Christ of no condemnation, but Paul says the righteous requirements of the law begin to be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a grand thing to remember. Having the Spirit makes us aware of our need. We don't need to pretend that we're better than we are. But we also don't and must not be content to remain where we are. How much we still need to rely on that Spirit. How much more of Him and of His indwelling power we need for for unity in the church for holiness in the church and in my own life, for for vigilance against those who would lead us astray, for remembering and for adherence to the word which he authored. May God enable us to walk by that spirit in this church and in our lives in this world until our last breath or until he comes. Amen. Oh Lord, would you help us to walk by your spirit and to remember your word for the good of our souls. In Jesus' name. Amen.